Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the show, we welcome Director of Quantitative Market Strategy, Denise Chisholm. Denise dives into the yield curve inversion and assures that it does not necessarily indicate an immediate recession as proven by the inversion in 1966. It is more the steepening of the inversion that causes issues for the equity market than the inversion itself, and half of the time there comes a recalibration of monetary policy. The current six-month run rate of the PCE deflator has dropped to below 2%, and the price level remains 20% higher than it was before the start of COVID-19. And she adds inflation has slowed down a bit to the measure that the Federal Reserve prefers. Denise also discusses the current rate drops and how that could lead to risk assets from more economically sensitive sectors improving. This podcast was recorded on January 29th, 2024. Let's begin. There's lots of moving parts. There's lots to set up for, and we'll go into all those pieces. But I really wanted to just get your thoughts on the inversion the yield curve inversion, where do we go with this? Where have we landed? And what is sort of consensus on it? I think some of the biggest problems when you do yield curve analysis, let's put it into two buckets. One is that there are many investors that I talk to that think that the yield curve has always correlated 100% of the time to a recession. And it depends on how back, how far back you go in history. Let's not forget about 1966 when we did see a yield curve inversion, maybe not as deep as we have currently, but we did see an inversion and we didn't see a recession for four years. So when I talk about yield curve inversions, I always say that the range of outcomes from the point at which the yield curve inverts to the time at which the recession hits is anywhere between six months and four years because you should include that in your data point. So that is data point number one about yield. Data point number two, and I want to go through four. Data point number two is that the average equity market return after the yield curve inverts is 10%. It's actually not a great 10 percentage points in a total return. That includes dividends, but still, it's, it's not a very good sell signal from a time mechanism for that reason, because the range of outcomes is very wide and when it starts to matter. Point number three, and I think this is a critical one, is that I have a lot of people ask me, It's not the inversion that's the problem for the equity market. It's the steepening from the inversion. And that's true sometimes. So the same thing can be said of first Fed cuts. So about half the time in history, when the Fed cuts, they're cutting because there's a problem. And that problem ensues into a recession. But the other half of the time, and this is looking back to the 60s, right? So you can change those probabilities by shortening your time horizon and say, well, over the last 20 years, it's more like 75% of the time there's a problem. So it depends on what you want to look at. But what I will say is 50% of the time, it's just a mid-cycle slowdown or has been a mid-cycle slowdown where there's a recalibration of monetary policy. We forget because we never had something like that in the 2010s because we were recovering from a deleveraging deflationary crisis in the financial crisis. But we saw that in the mid-90s. We saw it in the mid-80s. We saw it in the mid-70s. And we saw it in the mid-60s. So when you look through all of history, and you say, okay, those first Fed cuts that tend to congregate around that steepening trend, again, what's my odds that a recession or that this has been a bad event for the market? And you sort of say 50-50. Now, the last thing I'll say, and this is, I think, the critical part, because what I've just told you is there's not a lot of signal in the noise 
of the pattern of yield curve inversions that I am willing to bet on. Partly because what it shows you is that as much as we all love cycle analysis, every cycle is very different. So to me, when I analyze cycles, I think about what's different and what those differences have meant. And if we can mine that difference in terms of a signal, and the answer is it is very different this time because we've been off cycle this cycle. So 100% of the time, historically, at least from the 60s, what you have had happen is the yield curve inverts, then the market corrects. We had the opposite. The market corrected, then the yield curve inverted. Now, on this little bit of data, because again, you don't have a lot of data with yield curve inversions. You've got eight of them since the 60s, and you only get one every five to seven years. On this little bit of data, does the fact that the market either has gone down or go up less correlate to future returns? And the answer is yes. So what you'll find is the correction we saw in 2022 around that yield curve inversion does potentially predict or at least have a historical relationship with the fact that stocks are more likely to go up despite the fact that the yield curve is A, inverted, and B, potentially steepening. So you've got layers of what I would call noise and signal that don't make me feel secure as an investor using the yield curve as your case to stay on the sidelines for equity. That is fascinating. And the whole idea of this cycle is very different. It's something I feel like we have to come back to. Okay, so we will. Let's get into what the Fed sits with in terms of its data, everyone's data right now, the PCE deflator. We've seen that. That has has come down. It is essentially where the Fed would like to see it for now. What does that mean? Yeah, so we are, in terms of the core PCE deflator, we're there in terms of the six-month run rate is now below 2%. So again, the best way to think about where the year-on-year rate is headed, and I think the year-on-year rate is fine, is to think about what is our current run rate. So our current run rate on a three- and six-month basis is 1.86. So unless you think that something else is going to happen, that is likely where we will gravitate to. It's not transitory in the sense that we didn't go back to the price level. Our price level is still 20% higher than it was before the pandemic. But inflation has slowed and slowed relatively quickly on exactly the measure that the Fed prefers. Now, this is running lower than the CPI, which is now reverting back to that historical pattern because CPI is more driven by housing. But this is the core PCE deflator. So the question is, well, what has this meant historically? And you'll see a pattern with the lower inflation is, let's say, under 2%, the higher the nominal rate already is, meaning that the Fed hiked, right? We're in top quartile position in terms of the Fed has hiked rates. We have high nominal rates and we have low inflation. That typically leads to 70% odds of a cut. And it's the sweet spot for the equity market. Now, you might think it's the opposite because what I just told you was low inflation, high rates, high real rates, right, Denise? Restrictive monetary policy. Isn't that a problem? The answer is not necessarily because it mean reverts. The market is forward looking. What typically happens is the market understands and it ensue and it comes to be that to the extent that we are hit with an economic shock for the first time in a very long time, the Fed has the ability to cut. And that is what when you sort of roll through the recession odds, what happens from a occurrence perspective in history, as much as you would think that, well, this is a high occurrence of recessions over the next 12 months because real rates are very high, it's actually only 3%. 
because it sort of shows you how history yeah. typically plays out. Because the cushion is there, which is which is another reason, maybe why I don't know if that's why the cycle is all different. That might be different, but but a lot of things are different. The cushion is there. That's that's new in the last almost twenty years. Absolutely, and it's fairly rare. So when you think of that bottom quartile inflation as judged by the PCE deflator and top quartile nominal rates as judged by the Fed funds rate going back to the 1960s, that combination only happens 10% of the time, right? So we are in rare territory, and I will tell you that that rare territory has been quite constructive for the equity market. Amazing. Okay, take us through the the relationship, because we keep watching the employment numbers. We're going to have another one to look at shortly at the end of this week. Unemployment numbers, I mean, things look fine on the on the employment side of things. Therefore, are there need, does there need to be a cut? Does there not need to be a cut? Does there absolutely not need to be a cut? For instance, is there some strong signal if employment's fine? Yeah, so it's funny. I can't tell you what the Fed will do, but I can tell you that the data that they have acted on historically and the data that they have not acted on historically. Right. So I just told you that the combination of inflation and nominal rates is something that they have acted on, meaning they don't want to create the opposite of the policy mistake that they just created, which is have real rates be too high for too too long for no real reason, because inflation is slow within that vertical. If you said, well, they have a dual mandate. And the function of the unemployment rate being fine, as you described, is really the intersection of supply and demand, meaning that if there's limited supply and excess demand, won't that ultimately create inflation? And what I can tell you is that the Federal Reserve has not relied on the unemployment rate to make that other decision. So that tells you one of two things is that one that is not predictive and that the, the, you know, the function of the unemployment rate is not really, as much as we want to make it, the intersection of supply and demand and ultimately correlated to future wage growth, it's just an imperfect indicator. And that historically, the Federal Reserve actually knows that for as much as we rely or they rely on the Phillips curve, that there is that sort of big, big range of outcomes in terms of predictability. So inflation first, unemployment you know, much later in the process. So when you think about have to cut or don't have to cut, I don't think that a low unemployment rate or strong enough job growth makes it such that the Fed is going to stay in restrictive territory even longer if history is a guide. The second thing that I would like to say is if you just think about growth and employment, you know, being the key part of the cycle, I've heard people talk about, you know, R star, the way to think about R star in terms of nominal growth being higher. So nominal rates need to be higher. But when you look at the relationships historically with the excesses, if growth is running too high, really the function is around real growth. So real GDP growth is right now running around three and nominal rates. So that's output. What output is coming out the door, right? We troughed at 0.66%. Now we've reaccelerated to three. We're probably going to decelerate to two and change over the course of the next, let's call it six to nine months. What does that mean for nominal rates where the Fed is? Well, the Fed's sitting at five and a half. Think about this. This was the opposite at the lead up into the financial crisis where we cut rapidly and aggressively after that dot-com bubble, thinking that the asset deflation was going to cause much more a bigger crisis. But growth shot back up, real growth shot back up, and nominal rates were well below real growth. That's the problem area. 
that has the ability to create excesses when you think about run it out for the next decade. And that's something that's rare in history and that I think the Federal Reserve wants to guard against. That's it's, not our situation. It's not our situation, but it is sort of a mix up of nominal versus real, is it not? Great way to describe it. That's a great way to describe it. Yes. It's sort of confusing the two. And it is confusing when, when things are going up quickly and coming back down quickly. I mean, you can see how the average person is like, well, well now hang on just a second. What, what is real and what is inflationary or what is including inflation? So just to come back to uh, the intersection of what the Fed needs to do with, with data on, on the job side of things, we've got this jobs number coming up. So what would constitute, sorry, I come from a journalism background. So what kind of number would you need to move the market is basically the question. <laughs> like what, what is going to make the market go, uh-oh, or that's great or something in between? I think that is such a tough question because what do you mean, uh-oh, the day of? And then I would tell you a negative payroll number would always be an uh-oh, uh, the day of. The problem with payrolls, and you've heard me say it over and over again, is they are so heavily revised. It is very hard to say over a long period of time what an individual payroll print means. Does the market know Potentially on any given day, no, right? And that's why long-term investors in some ways should potentially take the other side of it. Now, I think the, you could make the argument that we're kind of due for a negative payroll number. I mean, negative payroll numbers do happen uh, much more frequently than we've seen them. Uh, and there are definitely those who are always like, wow, oh, it's seasonals and the net birth um, death adjustment covering up all the weakness in the labor market. And I can tell you that that just happens every cycle. So, you know, that sort of will get it eventually. I find it not a convincing argument. And I just find payrolls just a really rear view looking indicator that investors probably shouldn't be focusing on. And I would say that's true for the Federal Reserve as well. If you are waiting for the Federal Reserve to A, cut rates, or B, tell you that you're going to cut rates, you've missed the move. 75% of the time, the long rates have peaked by the time that the Fed cuts, meaning that the market is already starting to price it in. So, which tells you what you know, like in your heart as an equity market investor, is like by the time I'm comfortable and I have visibility, I've missed the move. That's the problem with the equity market. I wish it wouldn't be like that, but that's the problem, is that you get the bulk of the return when you're uncomfortable. So with rates going down, we think, yes. do you see risk assets improving more than, for instance, an income fund approach? Yes. So my answer to that would be yes. And I would say risk assets from the perspective of economically sensitive sectors, which is sort of the opposite of uh, income investing. Well, not always, right? Because high yielding stocks does have a big component of financials right now that I would actually put into that cyclicality bucket. So I think that the problem for this cycle is twofold for, I'm going to call it low vol or okay. safe. And whether you think about that in a factor like low vol and invariance or a sector component like consumer staples, utilities, healthcare, and the old telecommunication services, they've got too expensive as they were. I mean, they were really expensive at one point. They have come off of this. You're right. They are not expensive anymore. But the biggest problem is a fundamental headwind that is likely coming their way, meaning we're back to that off cycle. The earnings recession already happened. To the extent that we reaccelerate in earnings, these sectors just have not kept pace. 
So that's almost the definition of that animal spirit that the question is really getting to. Should you be risk on? It's not necessarily around rates. It's actually around the combination of rates and earnings growth. To the extent that rates are falling and earnings growth is accelerating, which is my base case, and I'm happy to go into my paper on that that I wrote. If that's the base case, that is very pro-cyclical, right? So rates falling and earnings growth falling, that's defensive. So reason number one to be pro-cyclical or risk on or not potentially income oriented is that acceleration in earnings growth. Reason number two, even outside that, I think that there is a problem with low ball stocks in terms of their impairment in fundamentals relative to history. So I guarantee you, if you have somebody you know, on your team that's studying history and they say, hey, well, wait a minute, rates are going down and earnings growth is going up. And I look at this historically and the yield curve is uninverting. You want to own consumer staples in healthcare. Yes, that's true. You had pretty good odds, historically speaking. And they've lowered each decade in the odds of those outperformance because in the 70s and 80s and into the peak in the mid 90s, what you saw was consumer staples and healthcare were growth sectors. They were growing EBITDA by 15 to 20%. And now fast forward to today, margins have peaked in the early 2000s and have been declining. And in fact, the margins over the margin degradation in consumer staples over the last 18 months is the worst we have on my data going back to the 60s. So they start to screen to me like a value trap. And so that's never a margin of safety. So when you think about, shouldn't I just get defensive? You have gotten defensive, historically speaking, because there's a higher margin of safety. So when an economic blow happens, there was less of an issue in those sectors because they could grow through it. It's not clear to me that technology isn't the new consumer staples in healthcare, meaning that the risk reward is more permanent there despite higher valuation levels because EBIT margins have the potential to have higher operating margins cycled. So I think that the problem with defense or the pro-risk argument is not just the fact that I think that the economy is going to get better and earnings growth is going to recover, but it's all around the fact that we have a very different margin of safety math in these defensive sectors than we ever had in the last 20 years. That's amazing. Okay, so what are we looking for? The acceleration in earnings, which is which is what you think we'll see. Year-over-year numbers is what we want to see. Take take us through, I mean, earnings here, but but through the rest of the year. What what are you expecting? What do you see so far? Yeah, so I think what we are what IBIS numbers are expecting is I think around 10%. And there's a fair uh narrative, a bearish narrative around the fact that, well, that's too fast, that's too far too fast, we're not going to hit 10%. And oh, by the way, numbers are coming down, so it's sort of playing out that way. There's a couple of problems with that argument. One is that numbers almost always come down over the course of the year, and by almost always, I say 10% of the time, and the market goes up despite that 75% of the time. So that's not really particularly predictive. It doesn't concern me that we don't hit that 10% number for that reason. But what changes my math is that deceleration into a contraction that we saw of an earnings recession of 5 to 7%, we need to see that acceleration. We don't necessarily need to hit 10% in the same way that inflation needed to slow, but it didn't need to do. We need to make progress on earnings growth. We don't need to hit numbers. And there's a reason for that. It's not just that the market is pricing in, I mean, this is like the three-dimension market, right? It's not just that the market has to correctly get the 10% forecast this year right. 
all about duration. To the extent that maybe the 10% is not 10%, but it's 6.5%, but that 6% is going to 10% in the out year and much more durable than 10% going to 5%, all of a sudden that's a positive for the equity market. So duration is actually almost more important. So to me, when I look at the data, we're not all the way through earnings, but we've, we've got no. some data. We're beating by 5%. People are guiding down. To me, that's checking boxes of we're doing the thing that we should be doing, which is making math accelerate. And that is a constructive setup. That's amazing. Just tie it right there back to the Fed and sort of the odds of what happens, of what the Fed does in, in moments like this, when you know things like that are going on in the equity market, there's, there's reason to be hopeful. What does the Fed need to keep in mind? Or maybe it, it separates itself. I don't know. Well, I think that the the big question on people's minds as it relates to the Fed this cycle versus any other cycle is QT. Um, and that's where it is different this time. And there is the ability that they make the right moves on the policy front, meaning that don't keep it too restrictive, but yet don't keep it too loose, right? Some people will call that, you know, immaculate disinflation or Goldilocks. I always say Goldilocks and immaculate disinflation actually has the highest odds historically, but there is some concern about the balance sheet and what QT may have. Um, the issue I have with that is as much as liquidity is a big driver as it relates to bond investor, what you want to own, the duration of what you want to own, and the moves in rates, it's still very hard for me to find that predictive link to the equity market. So if I look at the balance sheet, sometimes it correlates, Sometimes it doesn't. And those times that it doesn't is dependent on growth. So sometimes, obviously, we saw in 2022 when the balance sheet was being restrictive, that correlated to an equity market correction. But what else did the spike in inflation, the contraction in earnings growth? So then statistically, which of those three was it? Historically speaking, you can say when inflation is top quartile and rising, that's bad for both earnings growth and the market. I'll bet on that correlation all day relative to the QT that we may or may not be afraid of. So my point is, to the extent that earnings accelerate and can accelerate, and then inflation is, let's say, not re-accelerating to top quartile levels, which the breakpoint would be four and a half, I think QT is not as problematic to equity markets as many investors. But I do think that that's what we will be listening to the Federal Reserve talk about over the course of the next six months, even after a potential rate cut. Do you see any similarities between now and the end of the 90s? Yeah, there's another question with that about, about cap size, but let's, let's do that one first. Yeah, so the similarities I see about the, throughout the 90s in some ways are, is our very rare historical instance, like I talked about with low inflation and high nominal rates, that was pretty much only the 90s. And another thing that is a lot like the 90s is the nascent, and we can't call it a trend yet, but the nascent acceleration productivity. So those two things do, look, I'm not going to say if it's an analog or perfect situation, but if you are saying what decade is it most like, 60s, 70s, 80s, the 2010s, or the 90s, I would, or the aughts, I would say the 90s is sort of looking the most similar to me. It approximates more like 95, 96 when I look at the data in terms of where we are on the manufacturing cycle. And to me, again, I don't, I, I mean, and there's no perfect parallel. The biggest problem with any analog to today 
I've heard so many people say, well, are we expecting a soft landing then? Soft landing. We had two, three quarters ago now, GDP, GDI was contracting. GDP was 0.66%, right? That is not a soft landing. You can call it a soft, hard landing. You can call it a hard, soft landing. But I think we landed, right? We never even landed in the 90s from a GDP perspective. We never had leading indicators contracting as they are now. And that's part of the reason why we never had the equity market discounting so much fear in the 90s either. So as much as there are similarities, meaning that the Fed's in a much better position to cushion us from any economic blows, and that was what defined the 90s because it was the longest cycle really at that time, I think part and parcel because of the equity, because of the Federal Reserve's ability, but it's also the fact that we are more fearful than we were in the 90s as well when you think about the equity market being a discounting mechanism. Okay, we got to get to the top three, top, top three and bottom three sectors for you right now. You've mentioned and talked around several of them. I think it's tech and financials on the top three, but you'll tell us. So two of the three, no change, which is technology and consumer discretionary. In some ways, they're very correlated and in some ways they're the same play. That's what worked last year. I think that that's what's going to work this year. But I'm going to add in and I'm going to pick, I know you said three, but I'm going to throw in four because I think it's important. Financials and real estate. I think that to the extent that we expect, and I do expect the market to broaden out, I have been talking to portfolio managers about owning more interest. It's in part for, I'll give you three reasons. It's in part because the, the macro backdrop is changing from higher rates and contraction earnings to lower rates and an acceleration in earnings. And that change, the single biggest improvement is usually in real estate. But that's not all. The all is also specifically in real estate. Fundamentals are quite poor. And that is usually the point at which you want to own them. It doesn't mean fundamentals will get worse. They did before in the financial crisis. They did before in the SNL crisis. What it usually means is the fact that the market is more likely to price it in ahead of time. I think we saw that in the fact that it's lagged by about 20 percentage points, financials too. So if you say, well, the market, it's not that fundamentals are going to get better, but it's the market that has discounted that in terms of fundamentals getting worse. My judge for that is wide valuation spreads. When investors sell anything they think is risky, right? That's what's called office. And they buy anything they think is safe, anything that's not office. You right. get these recessionary right. gaps that is as wide as we saw in the financial crisis, as wide as we saw in the SNL crisis. And it usually tells you that if you are willing to lose, you make money 85% of the time. 85% is not 100. But when you layer on that and the fact that the median PE for financial stocks is below 10 times, right. and that has correlated historically, you start to get a confluence of signals that to me are the mathematical equivalent of. Ding, 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 you've got a big coiled spring in an area of the market that has lagged quite aggressively. This does not, I'm not going to be able to give you like, that's going to work for you. There is no clean story around owning these very controversial sectors, which is probably why I can't really convince any of our portfolio managers to go massively overweight. I shouldn't say none, not none, but I'm just trying to talk about Watch your underweights here, right? This has been a deeply lagging sector, which has given a whole lot of people a lot of alpha on a relative basis. And it strikes me as the exact same situation that we saw in energy in 2020. There was nothing good about energy in 2020. No. That was what you saw of 100% relative return off of. So it's this like extreme indicator 
that at minimum, I think you want to neutralize in your portfolio. And if you've got some, you know, guts in terms of you're willing to look through the volatility, um, and that's sort of what I do, I think it's, you know, in, in your top three sectors, if you have the ability. And just to be clear, this is you like at U.S. real estate office, for instance. This is definitely U.S. And yeah. when you think about like all of my sector stuff, it is very different in Europe. So please don't translate. Because right. when you think about consumer staples in Europe, it proxies more like consumer discretionary and it's already been leadership. So there's a lot of issues with porting sector recommendations across the board. We are so grateful that you um, knocked some sense into all of us. Denise Chisholm, thank you so much for joining us on a Monday and setting us straight. Uh, really appreciate your time. Have a good week. Always great to be here. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.